film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, filmmaker Sophie Vamvari talks about using film to explore grief, the up and downsides of making a personal film, and the dangers of youth culture. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Thank you, Sophie, for taking your time out of your day to come to Real Print. No problem. Happy to be here. As I done with my past guests like Robert Greene and Alex Sergio, what's your first film memory? Oh, my first film, like the first film that I remember seeing, you mean? It can be either or. Okay. Or both. So I think my first like film memory would probably be either the Yellow Submarine or The Point. I know that my dad was really into that sort of era of music and animation. Like they're both, like The Point is, um, is it Willie Nelson? Sorry, Harry Nielsen. Harry Nielsen music. And um, obviously the Yellow Summer is the Beatles. So it was like very much like music animation films. So they were kid friendly, but also like very much to my parents' taste at the time. Um, so I watched those at home. But my first actual movie theater experience that I have memories of, which is kind of late because I didn't, I, there was no movie theaters where I grew up. Because um, I lived on a very small island called Gabriola Island off the coast of west, uh, the west part of Canada. And so there was no actual cinemas there. So I didn't really start going to the theater until we moved to like the main mainland or the main island, they call it Vancouver Island. So my first actual memory that I, I, I think is one of my first movie memories is seeing AI actually mm. um, with my mom, um, which is like, you know, on point with the themes of the film. Um, so yeah, I remember seeing uh, that at like the local movie theater in Nanaimo and just being pretty blown away by it. And I've obviously revisited that film a number of times since then. But yeah, that would be my first two that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Well, that's crazy how the AI one has uh, some direct or indirect, but also that your dad was cinemat- learned cinematography and your grandpa was a production designer. Did you... Do they influence your filmmaking in any way? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I didn't really know my grandfather growing up uh, because my parents immigrated. We didn't really go back to Hungary as a family. So I didn't have that much of a connection to my grandpa's career. I only really knew in retrospect, like what he did and and only really understood it in retrospect after he had passed away. So as much as it would seem from the outside that I had a very like obvious path, I didn't really know that much about him Uh, and then my dad went to film school in Hungary to be a cinematographer but again also after he immigrated with my mom and my brothers uh, he didn't continue doing cinematography it just wasn't possible economically for him to do so he shifted in his career but he continued to practice sort of his art through photography which is why my childhood is kind of so well documented I guess through him um so in a way, like my, yeah, I guess my dad influenced me more than my grandpa, if anything, just because he introduced me to a lot of art and was always filming and and, fo- and photographing myself and my siblings. And that's obviously made its way into my work 
So <laughs> in that way, he has been a very direct influence. But in other ways, I think I make very different films than the kinds of films that he would make if he was making films. Mm -hmm. That makes me want to think about how you have different entry points because you even though a lot of what's documented may not be like one's reality as we'll talk later on about it, but uh, what was your other entry points to be a filmmaker? I think, I mean, I think a lot of people kind of just know they want to be a filmmaker pretty early on, but that was not my path. I think I was very interested in film from an early age, but not, I never thought about making them myself, I think. I was just more interested in them I, from like a, a, an audience perspective, I guess. And then I, then I got interested in acting, which I think is like a really common entry point, especially for women, because that's what you see on screen. And I wasn't really thinking about the directors because it wasn't something that seemed super accessible or I didn't really, you know, it just didn't really occur to me, to be honest. And then I was interested in acting. So I did some acting in high school and I thought about going into acting school, but then ultimately ended up in a film course just kind of by accident and made a film for the course. I really enjoyed it. Um, so that I was kind of encouraged to go to film school after that. And, and uh, that was the beginning of it but even though even after four years of film school I still wasn't like sure that I was going to be a filmmaker because they don't really make it sound like a possible path. it's more like you should learn a skill so you can work in the industry so I was mostly focused on production design and art department and that's what I was planning to do after school but then I made like my first personal short film after film school and <clears throat> really enjoy that experience. So basically from there on, I just kept doing that. Yeah. When did you know that you will be a filmmaker for certain? I guess after I made Nine Behind, which was in 2015, I think. Yeah, 2015 was when I made my first short that actually was meaningful to me. Like I made a lot of films in film school that were much more just like practice or, you know, they were not really my work because I wasn't allowed, you weren't allowed to, uh, direct your own writing in my film school you had to direct other students writing so I hadn't really had a chance to make like work that was meaningful to me or personal until after I finished film school but then I, I just like really quickly jumped into shorts and made quite a few <laughs> between 2015 and now um, and I also did my master's in 2017 to 2020 and that's where I made my thesis film which was still processing and that's uh to date like the longest film I guess it's 17 minutes but the, yeah every every film has been a short film um and I think I've made like I don't know somewhere between like eight to ten okay well we of course will not talk about all eight to ten specifically yeah. but all these films are about having technologies that stores testimonies or the entry point of other connections. What interests you the most about it? I think it, uh, the theme of like technology in my work came up pretty naturally organically because it's just a big part of my daily life, like how I interface with people and friends and through the internet. And that's just the era I grew up in. So a lot of my work is based around like my own experiences, but also like what I have access to and communicating through technology is a very affordable means of like in introducing another element of um, another character or it's a really good way to add like subtext because um, your characters can engage with things that are not physically present in the room, which, you know, it helps when you're dealing with a limited budget. 
So they just kind of happened organically because I was always just thinking about what I had access to. Um, and I do spend a lot of time on my computer, so it just made sense for me. That makes you think about how you use stack shots because is it because, oh, it's just natural for me to just not do as much or because of the budget limitations? It's kind of, it's hard to say which comes first, to be honest. I think the limitations helped me make more simple work and I'm now it's kind of become the style of my work. Although I'm trying to like work that I do in the future, expand on that simplicity a little bit. I think it's, I, I think I'm just, I was really focused on trying to hone in like on a particular experience or emotion, which is like not a high budget thing. I was able to try to communicate those things without a lot of money because that's just, you know, didn't have any. So it was really just like what I, what I fell into because of the, the circumstances, but I was happy with the limitations because they created, like, it's like anything with like film. I think if you have an, a rule or a limitation or a dogma or something, then you're going to do things that are more consistently in line with your point of view because you have to make decisions. Whereas if you have like unlimited resources, you're probably going to end up struggling to make those decisions because there's a lot more options. But when your options are limited, you have to be more creative, I think. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I love how you use that creativity to process grief. And uh, how has film making been used as a healing or even therapeutic tool? So I think that film making can be a helpful tool for processing experiences you've had in your life, but I would never suggest or recommend that it's in place of therapy. I think it's like a dangerous idea to think that you can just make art about your experiences and hope that'll uh, make those feelings go away. I think it needs to go hand in hand with therapy. For me, it's less the film itself and more the act of making it that has been helpful. Like, because when I made Still Processing, I had to think about and talk about that experience a lot and it, forced me to like reckon with things. And then I also in releasing the film, I was able to connect to a lot of people who had had maybe similar experiences. And that's also really helpful and therapeutic. It also helped me connect with my family because we had to work together on this film. And I think it's, I think it is a really powerful tool and, and it's really uh, interesting to me, like the potential there. But I also feel like since having made that film, I've thought a lot about the ways in which it can be I wouldn't say dangerous, but I do I do have a lot of filmmakers that <clears throat> I speak to about making personal work. And I've uh, become a little bit more, you know, not like I'm warning people against it, but I'm just, I, I think that now I have a, a lot of experience with putting work out that is incredibly vulnerable and it's can be uh, traumatic in its own way because you are putting a lot of yourself out there and people aren't always going to react well or nicely or whatever it is it's a complete out of your control once you release work so i think i'm just more apt to be uh transparent about the fact that if you are making really personal work you shouldn't have any kind of goal for it to like change your life you have to just like go into it hoping to like learn something but you can't expect people to interact with it in any kind of specific way and it is a very vulnerable thing to do so you have to know when you put yourself out there that that's that is what you're doing and it's going to make you feel very like vulnerable and 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 seen in a way that can be kind of intense like i think a lot of people are kind of encouraged to mind their experiences these days and i just think people should be 
careful with what they are putting out there because you can regret it too. I, I don't regret any of the films I've made and I feel really good about the decisions I've made with my films, but I just think I see a pattern of this with film right now where people are like, I should mine my most like difficult and traumatic experiences and make films about them because that's what is in vogue. And I think that's a little bit of a dangerous trend. Uh, so and it's kind of a long winded answer, but <laughs> my feelings have changed and fluctuated a lot over the life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't worry, I like long-winded answers, but <laughs> but will you change any of the stuff they did back then coming to your future work in terms of sharing yourself on screen? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am in a lot of my own work, and that also was kind of out of necessity in some ways, but also just allowed me a certain level of control to tell those stories in the way that I wanted to without having to engage with external factors as much, which was, like, helpful for the limitations. I, I, I am interested in moving forward in working with more you know, either professional and non-professional actors. I, I enjoy acting, but it's like not, I was never intending to like be a writer, director, star, you know, whatever kind of filmmaker. It's just, I, I just kind of accidentally ended up in a lot of my work to be honest, but <laughs> yeah, I love working with actors and, and people on screen. So I'm excited to do that more in the future. That makes me want to talk about performance is how you're incorporating uh, the, a reality that you live in into the characters that you present on screen. And uh, what first got you interested in performance outside of outside of necessity and mm -hmm. realize what you could do later on with it? Mm -hmm. um, do you mean like performance within like the documentary context or performance? Yes, performance within documentary context. I should make that clear. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was just curious if you meant like uh, acting in general or that, but I know you're interested in the sort of blurred lines and documentary. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think it's a very fascinating subject. And obviously Robert Greene is someone who can be a really great entry point for a lot of people and was for me um, when I was first getting into broadening my horizons, I guess, in film. Like I, I was trying to watch a lot of work that was you know, unconventional in the way it told stories. And I think I saw Kate plays Christine first. And I think uh, it was one of those films that did give me a sense of the kind of work that was being made at the time that was really like pushing those boundaries. And that was exciting for me. Um, and then since then, I've kind of opened my eyes up to a lot of other work that, you know, is is from throughout history, but also within modern cinema has like done that. And I think... Uh, it's just very, it feels like a very rich <clears throat> genre to me, because to me, it's less about performance and more about acknowledging artifice in film and trying to, not always being meta, but <clears throat> trying to find a way to acknowledge within the work that it is contrived and that there is within that an attempt to be honest. So performance doesn't necessarily to me equate falsehood and documentary doesn't necessarily equate to me uh, truth. So I think there's an opportunity with documentary, especially sort of hybrid and these kinds of terms to be a little bit more forthcoming about what the process is that you're engaging in. But I think it's just, uh, you know, it's just something that's excited me and has interested in me because I, I, I see a lot of documentaries that are quite manipulative in their form because they try to make it feel very real, but then people, when they find out there's performance in 
other work, they say, oh, it's so manipulative. I'm like, what's actually manipulative is convincing you that something is real when it's not. So I think it's, uh, it can go both ways, but it's just <clears throat> more than anything, I just think it's fun to talk about. And I'm not sure that that's like always the mode I want to work in, but it's something that has like forced me to reckon with the ways that I present my work. Because I think sometimes I make work and I don't really even recognize or engage with the genre that it is like pumpkin movie for example like i wasn't trying to make some sort of tricky non-documentary documentary hybrid i just was making a concept you know like it was just a conceit that i had and then it turned out to be something that was like quite blended in the style that has had people thinking it was a documentary or not so i like to <clears throat> leave it to other people sometimes to make those judgment calls as well mm -hmm. yeah that makes me want to talk more about pumpkin movie your you and your friends sharing encounters with men on Halloween and what inspired you to make that film? Um, so Pumpkin Movie was a film that I came up with rather quickly the concept for because I, a friend of mine was putting together an omnibus of short Halloween themed films to release on Halloween and they had asked me uh, to come up with a concept for a film rather quickly and to see if I could submit something to include. And that was the concept that I came up with. And it was something that really, you know, I'm, I, I love horror as a genre, but it's not something that I ever really considered making in my own work. So this was like my version of like a horror movie. And I wanted to do something, again, that was low budget. And uh, I, I was also really at the time interested in like how how to obtain like the most naturalistic performance from non-actors. And I think part of what inspired me to make the film was like, I thought of the action of carving pumpkins first. And then I th thought of what they could be talking about, because I thought if I give two non-actors and I wasn't even sure at the time if it was myself, but if I give two non-actors an action to conduct, then that will <clears throat> be part of what distracts them from like the self-consciousness of being on camera. So I think that's like a good trick uh or like yeah I, I get a good way to encourage actors to step outside of their self-consciousness because they're doing an action so that having to do that brings you out of your head a little bit so the action of carving the pumpkin was the action and then I thought of the concept of sort of talking about these mundane experiences with men that are all quite haunting when put together but ultimately I came up with the concept and like three days later we shot the film and then it was done. It was like a very quick turnaround. It's very interesting. The films that you, you know, that you allow like the instinct to drive it can sometimes be the ones that push you the most to try different things. And that film ended up kind of being the film that started my career in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, as the film reveals the end that it's a contribution of uh, many people giving their stories with men. How did mm -hmm. you balance the script? Like how would you, what was the script processing like when you were gathering these stories? So I, I asked my friend Leah to collect stories on her end and then I collected a bunch of stories on my end and we didn't share them until we shot the film. So I'd collected and written down on a notepad just like a bunch of stories that either friends of mine had submitted or some people on Twitter had submitted and some were my own. And then Leah did the same. And then during the film, I just said to her, we're going to, like, before we shot, I just said, we're just going to have a conversation about all the different things that 
we have um, experienced or that we collected these stories and that we'll just share them casually throughout the conversation. And so I would reference the notepad, like even while I was shooting, because that was part of the conceit was that we write them down throughout the year. Um, so there was no script. There was just like a reference of like these stories that we could like pull from. And I would just kind of parse them out as they made sense during the conversation. And she would do the same. And uh, we spoke for about an hour and then cut the film down into 10 minutes um, based on like whichever stories were the most compelling or narratively made sense, like uh, kind of escalating in, in severity. Um, so yeah, it was a non-scripted kind of performance piece, documentary horror film. <laughs> It made me wonder how you transitioned from the wide shot to this guy because there is a movie playing in the background with sometimes had to find the right cuts or even like avoiding the cutaways. Like, can mm -hmm. you talk about the editing process of that film? Yeah, of course. Um, it's a good question because we, we shot it sort of a television style where we had two cameras shooting at the same time. We had the wide and the close-up of me in the apartment shooting uh, with two different camera operators. Um, my DP that I work with, Devin Scott, and my friend Paige Smith. And then we had technically two of uh, two more camera angles, which was the screen recordings of both of our computers. So it was four angles going at once. And so all of those angles had the full hour of footage. And then because we had an abundance of footage, the, the content, we didn't care that much about continuity. Like we weren't like that finicky about it, but we just wanted the conversation to flow naturally. And I edited it with my friend, Will Ross, who's edited or helped me edit a lot of my films. We like to like co-edit basically. And they were able to, especially when I'm in films, it's really helpful to have someone else edit or help edit because it just helps me become a little more objective about the work like you know you I'm going to be more self-conscious about like my own performance or whatever so they were able to really help with that and and find a good flow but I wasn't that concerned with continuity in those like small ways but we just wanted it to feel like a natural progression of pumpkin carving but then also that the conversation wasn't like super stilted but I think it was like quite simple because the, the conversation was so anecdote based so you could really just drop them in as need be um but yeah no it's it definitely will was a big part of why that came together so smoothly mm -hmm. the film features projections whether it's projecting from the pumpkin or projecting thoughts and playing the movie in the background like makes thing really about how technology and other forms of uh, objects stores yeah i i mean i think no matter what you do, a lot of films are going to be either directly or inadvertently about memory and storage of memories. And because the act of filming is kind of a way to remember and a way to hold memories and to document and to archive and all those things just naturally come up, I think, even if you don't intend for them to. It's a little crazy how this film could be a pandemic movie today. Like, you know, we before we thought of in these terms, like there's a timeless and unfortunate sense sometimes with that film. Yeah, it's it is. It was kind of a weird thing where that film um, it, it hit like a lot of 
accidental zeitgeist things because I shot it something like three days before the news about Harvey Weinstein had come out. Like Me Too was already kind of in the air, but like that obviously was a huge shift in in that movement. Um, so I wasn't making it as a response to to Me Too or to Harvey Weinstein. It was truly just like what every woman's experience has always been. And I think Me Too just put more of a light on it. So I, I was put in a lot of programs at festivals that were like Me Too themed, but I really always liked to point out that it wasn't um, really a reaction to Me Too because that just kind of, not belittles, but it kind of like implies that Me Too is when women started to get harassed. <laughs> it's like, that has been the case since time in memoriam. So I just, uh, you know, but it ended up obviously benefiting from, in terms of festivals, the zeitgeist of, of Me Too and the, the conversations that were being had. So that was one thing. And then of course, with the pandemic as well, um, it feels like a film that was shot during the pandemic, but was shot many years before. So it like easily like slides itself there. And then it's also Halloween themed. So there's a lot of things that I think make it a pretty like accessible film um, from a number of different angles. So that's that was just like lucky, I think, in terms of how people, cause I didn't, you know, I didn't make it with any like grand ambition to have it even play festivals. Like it was just put online as part of that omnibus and that was the end of it for me um but then i uh received an email from chris bachman who used to program at true false obviously which you know very well uh, <laughs> the festival and at the time i was really uh, early on in my festival kind of career and understanding and i i didn't know about true false um but i told some friends that i got an invitation and they were like that's a really amazing festival you should definitely go and once i looked into it i was really surprised because they really program some of the most interesting uh hybrid and and documentary work to uh in in like the festival in the festival landscape so i was really surprised to have just been invited in such a like uh you know i had not submitted so it was it was a very unique and very encouraging experience for me early on and so that's when I went to Missouri for the first time and that really opened my eyes also to like the kinds of work that was being made and I found my niche I guess in that experience so thanks to Chris Bachman for doing the hard work of actually doing you go Chris curation you know like he was he was out there looking for work and this this was the same year that uh Kalika Law's like Black Mother played and that was also I think sort of a, a found object where he, you know, he was, he was digging for work that was not just like being submitted or played other festivals. So it was a really great experience for me because it, it allowed me to truly be like, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't escape the validity of it, I guess, <laughs> you know, because it's really easy with, as a filmmaker to have like imposter syndrome and come up with all these excuses. But I think he, he really, um, it really made an impression on me that he he felt strongly enough to just invite the film. Um, so that was a really, really cool, cool mm -hmm. experience. And from there on, I was able to play more festivals because True False is really well respected. So I was able to, you know, have that. Once you get one yes, other festivals are more willing to say yes. So that that was a that was a yeah, I would say that was a starting off point for me for sure. And since then, um, I still yeah, I still hold True False in a high high esteem and uh, where you also trying to not make a statement within the horror genre as you said earlier that uh, you make films about cons and not necessarily making uh, 
uh, grandiose statement sometimes? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I have enough, um, you know, stake in the horror genre to be trying to change it. Or to, you know, I, I think it was it was just a fun experiment for me um, to see where it would go. And I don't know, like if people I, I think that's a, that's a good example of a film where I really am happy to have other people decide how they want to categorize it. So it's mm-hmm. just it just was something I made with my friends and really enjoyed making. And I, you know, my best friend is in it, which was really fun. And she came with me to True False and and saw mind bending movies and she's not even a film person at all. So that was really such a, such a great experience for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wanted to keep rest of pumpkin movie a mystery and want to talk about Norman, Norman, like a portrait of your dog, Norman, what did you see in Norman that he should have his movie? <laughs> I mean, I, Norman was my first love. <laughs> he was a dog that I got for my 11th birthday after I had had a dog when I was really young and he was a corgi and he actually ended up biting me in the face. <laughs> but I... I didn't, I still loved him and wanted to keep him, but my parents obviously said that we had to give him up and he was genuinely given to a farm, not in like a metaphorical way. So I went to visit him a couple of times, but he would, those dogs can be very snappy because they're herding dogs. And I think maybe not always the best for kids. Um, So I don't blame him. It was just, it happened. And anyway, from that point onward, I really, really wanted a dog again. And I was always really connected. I connected with dogs a lot, I guess. And so I I got Norman for my 11th birthday and he was my, like, he was a family dog, but he was very much my dog. And then when I went off to college, I brought him with me. And, you know, we lived all over different parts of Canada together, like Montreal. And he went to Alberta and Vancouver and Toronto. Like, he really went around the world. Okay, not world. Uh, Toronto, <laughs> Canada with me. And he was with me through some of the most difficult times of my life. And he died when I was 28. So he he lived a very long life. And... Um, I knew when I made Norman Norman that he was like coming to the end of his life. And I just really wanted to document that process of pre grieving, like grieving before something happens and like the anticipation of grief and capturing that moment because it was very intense for me. And I wanted to do it in a way that matched his energy, which was just, I, I thought it was really funny that he didn't care. <laughs> like, you, you know, we, we project a lot onto dogs and I thought it was a good, opportunity to show the ways in which we project these extreme existential feelings onto dogs and they're just kind of like I'm here for a good time not for a long time man and (laughs) you're just enjoying life and we're having all these feelings about them leaving us and it's a very like human ego experience I think um and so I wanted to explore that in in the sort of desperate way of like wanting to keep him alive through cloning like all of that was just a bit of a joke because a lot of people sent me the article about Barbara Streisand cloning her own dogs and <laughs> everyone knew that I would do it if I could but I honestly would never but it's just it's just more like I thought it was just funny like it was a funny funny thought experiment and also kind of like making light of my own desperation to hold on to him and but he lived a very very good life and it was an incredible experience to make that film and have it play at TIFF and getting to bring Norman to TIFF was just the wild like he got to come to the screening and red carpet and all this stuff. So he really went out with style. I thought Norman's still alive because of the doc photo that you currently have. 
So oh, no, sorry, I'm sorry. No, he he passed away in uh 2019. Yeah. Mm. That oh, that made me think that it might be Norman's clone. Who knows? <laughs> no, Norman's clone is the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's thanks for being patient with my laugh. <laughs> of course. Uh, but how did you get Norman to lay down as much or get him this position you want? Oh, I didn't want him to do anything. I was really just filming him um, in his natural state. So, I mean, he was very old, so he slept for most of the day anyway. So, a lot of the filming was just because I decided to frame just him in the shot and frame out myself and show the computer, it was really easy to just get a lot of footage of him in different positions and then cut it together and create context after we shot, like with all the audio. So that was, uh, you know, it's a very simple way to, to edit something together because you don't have to, it's not based on continuity. It's not based on moving lips. It's not based on synced audio. So I had a lot of options for, for editing. It's really, mm -hmm. we just spent an afternoon filming Norman, you know, on the bed, on the couch, whatever he was doing. So there was no like, rehearsed or intentional actions on his part like I did know that he would eventually cough because he was in heart failure essentially so he he would cough that really grotesque cough that he makes in the film so I knew that would come up at some point and would be a very sympathetic moment for him but or funny depending on how you look at it um so I knew that would happen at some point but there was no yeah I didn't I didn't need him to do anything specific for the film to work mm -hmm. um were you in the in the film, were you you trying to do a different way of showing animal protagonists? Because a lot of films that have animals like Air Bud would be centered on the animal's parents, but never much of the animal themselves, with the exception of the recent EO. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen EO yet, actually. I'd like to. I've been wanting to. Um... But sort of the questions around like the decision to center him. Yeah, like what do you see in past animal-centered films that you may not have that's not really seen as much like what they want to do with the film? Right. Um, I mean, I, I just I thought that he was the subject in in a in a way that uh, would create more of an understanding of like the human experience because you're watching the dog, but really what you're understanding is the the experience of the person behind behind him and that's sort of what you can empathize with whereas the dog is having a very different emotional experience but we're just projecting as people onto the dog and, and thinking about oh well, he must be so scared that he's going to die or like sad that his owner is upset but he's just sleeping you know so it was really just I thought a good tool for showing like with the camera like what we see versus what we're projecting onto um an object or, a, or a, a being and I didn't think it would be as interesting to just show me frantically googling or whatever it just yeah it just made sense to me as your reaction is uh, through body language uh like he's just trying to grab onto it or you're just trying to hold on to his dear life but like what led you to not show your facial reactions to Norman um, I just thought they weren't important, to be honest. I just think that he, uh, he, everything that I wanted to say was, in, it was in his face. Um, and it just seemed like a really, 
good opportunity to try something that wasn't wasn't based around human facial reactions because it was most of the film is like you get the context from the audio like you see that there's a girl or you don't even know that gender but you see there's a person that's on their computer and on YouTube and going down like a rabbit hole so like you can kind of imagine what they're what the experience you're having and it's not like I, I or she would be having a super emotional experience it's more just like the insomnia of like staying up on your computer and going down dark YouTube holes and I think everyone can kind of imagine what that looks like on a person's face which is not even that interesting so it's more about the juxtaposition between like what you're seeing and what you're hearing mm-hmm. now that makes me want to talk about the a little bit more so processing that we didn't mm -hmm. talk earlier about such mm -hmm. as you're opening yourself on camera like what are some of the things that get you to where you need to be emotionally it's mm, a good question i mean i i think the action of wanting of looking through the photographs was something that i had wanted to do for pretty much my whole life like i knew that those photographs existed because my dad spent so much time documenting us and you know pretty much just always had a camera in my face and i'd seen very few photos from that time and it became even harder to want to bring myself to see them or to ask my parents for them after my brothers passed away so it just was this thing that was mounting and mounting and mounting inside of me and then when i finally decided that i was ready i had to slowly get you know convince my parents that it was time and so that took a long time and a lot of patience and a lot of difficult conversations but because it was so such a heightened thing i just really wanted to document it because it was very meaningful to me and you know up until that point like i had everything else had been documented so why not this you know it just made sense to me and i um so emotionally i was just like in a state of waiting for it to happen really and then the film itself was made very gently and slowly because it was just myself and my cinematographer Devin again and then we just took our time making the film so like emotionally if there's anything difficult like we just did one scene a day and took it very slow and you know there was no pressure because there, we weren't waiting on anybody and nobody was waiting on us you know very low-key very intimate shoot mm -hmm. and how did you get your brother to be more open on camera and what were the conversations you had with him before you do your scenes? So my brother Ben is um, compared to me an exceptionally shy person. <laughs> um, he's a very, he's a, he's a musician and he makes, he makes beautiful music, but he's not someone who does put himself out there in the same way that I do. So I was very aware of that in asking him to be part, part of the film. But basically I, I knew that it was something that was, would be meaningful to both of us to see those photographs and those videos. And so then it was just a matter of asking his permission to document it. And because we were basically just like, we did the same thing I did with pumpkin movie where like, I just went through the whole motions without cutting. So we just set up the computer and watched those videos together for the first time on camera. And we just let the cameras roll the whole time. So there was no acting involved or nothing contrived so he just we just sat together and watched them for like an hour and filmed the whole the whole time so we didn't have to you know recreate anything or perform or do anything that was uncomfortable for him so he just 
you know, was just being himself and I was just being myself and we are very, very close. So it was easy for us to just have that experience together. Um, and then just to, yeah, the camera was just kind of a background object. Mm -hmm. And as you said earlier, you haven't seen any of the materials. There was not a single photograph you saw from that box before you opened it. No, I mean, there was there was a few photographs that my parents like, had around the house. So there was a few things I recognized because my dad would make like multiple prints, um, but I had not opened the box itself prior to filming. Hmm. Okay. And uh, it makes me think about how the camera captures other things that we didn't have, such as memory. And how do you grapple with uh, the memories that a camera will have that you may not necessarily have a perfect sense of? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I think it's um, it's such a gift. Like it's such a gift to have proof essentially of your own existence, um, of your family's existence that goes beyond memory because I have a particularly fractured memory of my childhood, I think, and so does my brother. And so having these documents really is like very validating to my own uh, existence. I, yeah, without them, I think there would be a lot more gaps. And I just feel so lucky to have access to this and that my dad did document that, especially in such an artful way. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very special and I feel very lucky. And there's still so much I haven't seen. Like I, I could, I, I think like what's in that film is probably like, you know, 1% of what exists. Like there's just so much of it because he filmed and, and photographed us pretty much every day, I think. and. So there's there's just an abundance. Mm -hmm. As you didn't see much of your dad's photography or compositions, were there any of his sensible or emotional traits that you carry into your own aesthetics that you make? That's a good question too. Um, I I think that there is a way in which his his sensibility is just inherently in me where he was always really emphasizing naturalism. Like when he would photograph us, he kind of trained us to not react so much to the camera. Like we, he was never like the kind of parent that was like, smile, say cheese, whatever. He wanted us to be natural and wanted to document us in our natural state. So a lot of the photographs have an emphasis on um, not engaging with the camera. So I think that that kind of ha had a way of training me to not be so self-conscious around the camera. So like that allowed me to make the film in a way because I was able to just have those experiences and for the most part, shut out the fact that there was a camera there and still have a natural, you know, relatively natural experience. Like it's, you can never completely get that out of your head that you're being filmed. But I do think I have a slightly more, um, comfortable relationship with the camera because of my dad. Um, but his aesthetics were so gorgeous and so like, to me, like so moving and, and stunning that like, I would never say that I could replicate them in my own work. Like, I think my work is very different and I'm still finding my voice visually. So I think that part of what I wanted to do with still processing was have it be a, a contrast or juxtaposition with like the cinematography, the, the very like modern, digital cinematography with his like film, um, the film stock that he was using and, and to have that be like a 
a counterpoint actually, rather than trying to replicate it. Mm. And then you say a lot about earlier how there's so much of what's documented between like your paternal family members history with the medium, but then like, I don't necessarily can or have to replicate the, the history and just use your own path within filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I have made my own path for sure. And I've been, I can't imagine what it would be like if it was something that I was doing based on my family's connection or whatever to, to filmmaking. Like I'd be a very different filmmaker, I'm sure, especially if I, my family had stayed in Hungary. Um, there's a different industry there than in Canada. So it's just, it's not even really like a question of like a choice. It just, it's, that's just the way that it was. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm relatively happy with how that turned out, but it's just like, I, I also think because so much of my work is personal, it's, um, it's just based on, you know, I wouldn't be making the same work if my life experience was different. Mm -hmm. And uh, that just makes me want to have one last question about still processing things that I saw on Twitter a few days ago that you mentioned. Still processing is my first feature. What do you consider the non-technical parameters of of quote-unquote thesis film? Like, there should be no guidelines of What's next? Like, there should be shorts or how an apricot said in his film comment, that's the shorts, the longs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it, God bless Ine. Um, I think that, I mean, I was kidding, first of all. Like, I don't think self-processing is actually a feature. <laughs> I was more commenting on the fact that I can, and I know a lot of other people can get really caught up in this idea that you should make your first feature as early as possible and that you know, there's just the obsession with youth culture. And I think just as a sort of thought experiment for myself to give myself a little bit of grace there, I was saying it, it, it's helpful to think of still processing as taking the, this place of a feature in terms of like the length of time that it took me to make it because I spent a long time working on it, like years. And so that's that could have been like, I mean, I, I could have made still processing into a feature ultimately, but that was not what I wanted to do. Um, but just for me, like, it's kind of a nice way to uh, take off some pressure for myself to just think, okay, I did spend a lot of time on that film. And, you know, that's why I'm, you know, air quotes, like behind, but it's not, I don't, I don't think I'm actually behind. It's more just like uh, the, the ways in which I let myself get in the way of myself, I guess, really. Because, like, yeah, I, I don't think that anyone should, there's like a timeline that you should make a feature by this time. It's just like, it's, a lot of people make them really early. Sometimes they're great, sometimes they're terrible. It's just like, you have to do everything on your own timeline and features are no joke. Like they're a lot of time commitment and money and like, especially if you wanna do them well. So I'm just taking my time with it. I already know that, for example, Claire Denis is in her early 40s when she made Chocolate, Lynn Shelton, 39, John Cesare Goff, Ava Sherman at 36, 37. So take your time, Sophie. <laughs> Thank you, Eddie. No, I appreciate that. And I think it is it is a good reminder that like so many of the great artists did take their time. And yeah, not everyone is Xavier Dolan. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes me want to give a good exclusive chat briefly on 
is what each person needs about the digital communicator Becca Willow Moss. Like, how did you met Becca? Uh, Becca is a local Toronto, you know, artist, multi-hyphenate person. <laughs> and she is someone that I met actually through um, a friend of mine, um, who's also a critic and writer, Adam Naiman. He introduced us um, several years ago because he thought that, you know, Becca was working on a screenplay at the time and he thought maybe that I could give her some feedback or advice. And so we connected a few years ago and she expressed like an interest in my work and really wanted to find a way to work together. And so we knew each other, um, yeah, just through similar circles of, of film. And then eventually we kind of came upon this concept that made sense for both of us um, in terms of my work previously and then the work that she's doing. And it just kind of aligned nicely during the pandemic to make something um, that was a bit of a new challenge for me. And then also something that really interested her. Um, but yeah, that's how we met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I got to see a sneak preview of the film where mm -hmm. Like knows how the film is about the desire where we're trying to seek connections beyond like what's in our physical space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, she definitely pushes the limit of what it means to like connect with people because she's, I wanted to show sort of the abundance of trying to connect and if it's even possible to connect with that many people and what those connections look like and why people try to connect with a lot of people and what that looks like from behind the scenes. And yeah, I mean, I wasn't sure exactly what we were going to get when we shot the film. And so it was, it was a bit of a learning experience because I never had made something that was about like a subject, so to speak. Through desire, there is not the same purpose we all have while others just to cheer up while the man wanted a more sexual love type connection yeah. and like what were the differences in the people that Becca spoke to feature in the film about how they view desire and view companionship? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I think, yeah, I think I wanted to kind of have those two desires be put on the same plane. So like the men from the, um, sort of seeking arrangement side of things were had sexual desire, but also like connection desire that Becca was trying to meet those needs. But then Becca also works with the elderly. So she uh, has those connections through like the seniors homes that she works for. And she mostly like uh, does care work, but she also sings to the elderly. So those two things are obviously like on the surface, very like juxtaposing, but I thought it'd be interesting to put them side by side and show the ways in which they're actually quite similar, just in terms of meeting people's needs um, and the way that Becca's doing that in her life, like for two very kind of separate demographics, but then also a third part of the film is just how, what that does for her. Like, what is she getting out of it and why does she do it? And why does she want it to be documented? And because she ultimately wanted the film to be made. So, I tried to interrogate that a little bit as well because it's something that interests me around like why someone wants to put themselves out there. Mm -hmm. And what inspired you to literally be on camera when you instruct Becca to move the chair and bring your voice into the frame? 
Yeah, I mean, I, that wasn't the plan initially. Like I had set out to make the film a little bit more conventional in a way, but then once I'd finished editing, I felt unhappy with it. So I, I dug back into the footage and I realized that what interested me was more about the fact that um, I don't think there's like a way to make a very like objective film about a person without like having it be like very biased toward whatever you as a director want to project about them. And I just find like the whole concept of making like a subject driven documentary a little bit like disturbing almost because you can never really capture a person um, like the, the films like Grey Gardens and stuff like that. Like I, I think if I had seen them when I was younger, I would have liked, but when I saw it recently, I was like really off put by this idea of just like documenting a person for their ex eccentricities and have that be like the concept of the film. Cause there's always an idea around like exploitation, like consent and all these kinds of things. And sometimes people just want to be in films cause they want to be famous, but then they don't really know what they're getting themselves into. So I was really interested in having Becca like speak to her own desire of why she wanted to be in this film and what she wanted to get out of it. Um, so I kind of, you know, I put her on the spot a little bit and I asked her that question. She, like she says in the film, she's a very curated person. So she had a hard time kind of coming up with the concept quickly or like on this on the spot without having thought about it. But I think that was kind of the best way to have her be honest about it because I had up until that point not really understood her intentions of why she wanted to make the film um, and whether or not her answer is honest or not. Like I, I'll never really know, not to say it would be dishonest, but I think it's it's interesting to think about the ways in which you think you're projecting presenting yourself versus like what you really feel and to be really truly honest about that is like rare and hard to, to capture so yeah anyway I, I I wasn't planning to have my voice be in the film but I think ultimately it, it felt without that that the film felt a little bit too surface level mm -hmm. and I appreciate your inclusion in the very end because it reminds many storytellers how you have to have a personal connection to do this story. If you don't, what the hell are you going to do or make sense of this other thing you're doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to make films. I'm not gonna say there's one, there's there's no one way to do it. And I think that I, I just wanted to make something, like if, if I was gonna make something that was completely outside of my experience, I just wanted to make sure that I actually had something to say. Um, rather than just showing something. Because uh, I could easily just show Becca doing these two things and be like, isn't that neat? <laughs> and call it a day. But I think I was just more interested in, in complicating it a little bit and seeing how that how people would react to that. And I'm still, you know, it hasn't really been seen that much. Like it was played in festivals in Canada so far. Um, mm -hmm. So just, I still, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, just that I'm still, you know, I'm. It's it's yet to be seen, sort of like how people will react to it if it's if and when it's seen more broadly. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. Just want to remind viewers there will be a TIFF trailer of the short that you can make sense of. Like I apologize for the spoilers they might hear in this talk. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I don't think the spoilers are going to ruin the film at all. So it's all good. Okay. Thank you, Sophie. And the film has a lot of close-ups and uh, like, I appreciate how the close-ups provide 
some stuff that we might see on the surface, but we don't know how we're feeling. Like how you said earlier, you don't know Becca's full intentions or honesty of the answer she'll give about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to try with this film a slightly different style visually than my other work, just because it was a good opportunity to experiment. And I worked with a different cinematographer. I worked with Maya, who's now a good friend of mine, and she's so talented and actually just lives up the street from me. Um, but she's a professional cinematographer who's been working in the industry for a long time. And it was interesting to work with someone um, different and to try different things stylistically. And I shot in different aspect ratio and I shot on a different camera and I just wanted to try something new altogether. And uh, close-ups were really um, integral to that to just try to capture, well, I wanted to capture her in the space, but then also the kind of intimate experience of being on the other side of the camera with her, like the other side of the webcam, I guess. And that just makes me leave one last question, like within all of your work and with it's what each person needs is when the male person said lonely people deserve companionship do you think it's sometimes that you deserve companionship or sometimes earned wow that's a really good question to end on and i had not considered that i mean i think that that's a good question that people should ask themselves i don't think companionship is deserved i think you have to be a a self-aware enough person to know that you can that the companionship you can offer to someone else is is you know not uh one-sided or um just to benefit yourself like you have to be a good companion to someone if they're going to be a good companion to you but the thing about becca in this film is that she's offering companionship to these people but they're not necessarily offering it back to her um so that's really the question for me is like, why, what does she get out of it if that's the case? And I'm honestly still trying to figure it out <laughs> in some ways. I think it's interesting. And I think that we validate ourselves in different ways. And yeah, it's, that's part of uh, what I was able to, you know, ask with the film, but I don't know if it necessarily answers it, which is mm-hmm. not a bad thing. I think it's good to like leave some questions open. Yeah, I did not expect that. I always love hearing an open question like that or reply to that. Mm-hmm. And thank you very much for talking about the artifice, technology, and the family histories and memories, Sophie. Of course. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a really nice conversation. Before I let you go, is there a uncut gem that you want to recommend? Like, I'm not sure how much of past episodes you've heard of mine? I mean, I, I think it's relatively well seen, but maybe not super broadly, but a, a film I saw last year that I really loved, it's called A Married Couple by Alan King. And mm. I know it's on Criterion. Yes, yeah, it's a documentary about this couple. And I think it has a lot to say about, you know, authenticity and documentary and participant, um, engagement you know what what someone's willing to put on screen vulnerability performance like all these things it's just like it feels very much like you're watching um you know like a a narrative film because these these people are such 
characters, but it's it's very much their real life. And it's really like a brutal, brutal depiction of them. Um, it's not an easy watch, but I, th I found it really, really moving and intense and beautiful and problematic and con conflicting, all these different things that a good film is. Um, but yeah, I, I would recommend I would recommend that film. I don't know how hidden it is, but it's something that I that I was surprised I had not seen before. Um, it's been, and since has become one of my favorite films. Mm. Yeah. I really need to see that one. So, <laughs> well, once again, thank you for taking your time to discuss all of this. And it means a lot of filming or dying matter to even just speak about this to you. Oh, thank you so much. No, I, I'm glad that you asked. It was really nice. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation, courtesy of Kama. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Frumpkin signing off.